Why don't you turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. And when you have it, here's what it says. Say to them, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And so this is a statement about God's grace, actually, in the midst of tremendous difficulty for Israel. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for this time that we can be spending here. I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word, as we're studying the book of Ezekiel, uh, Lord, that our eyes would be open to whatever it is you have for us and that our hearts are open to receive from you uh, truths that uh, you speak into the lives of people that are experiencing turmoil uh, or experiencing tragedy or experiencing just all kinds of angst and difficulty. That your message of grace is present, but at the same time, Lord, you are correcting the hearts of your people. And so, Lord God, as we are your people and we know that your desires for our hearts to be turned towards yours, I ask, Lord, that we would be open to you. In your name I pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but once in a while I like to check out this, uh, this site called uh, Today in History, I think is actually what it was called. And when I was looking at, specifically, I was looking at July 31st. And on July 31st, I learned a few things. Uh, as a, For example, July 31st, 2021. So that's just this past July 31st. Did you know that it was the annual Mutz Day? M-U-T-T apostrophe S day. Mutz. Like dogs that don't have any discernible, uh, you know, breed. They're a mutt. It's their day. It's also, for those of you who are excited about this kind of thing, the National Avocado Day. National Avocado Day. And my daughter's favorite, you ready? National Cotton Candy Day. Who knew that there were so many different things that culminate on July 31st, 2021. But also July 31st, and that day in history, in 781, was the first recorded eruption of Mount Fuji in Japan. In 1498, Christopher Columbus becomes the first European to discover the island of Trinidad on his third voyage west. In 1964, for those of you who are into space exploration, Ranger 7 sends back the first close-up photos of the moon. In 1971, the Apollo 15 astronauts became the first to ride in a lunar rover. And in 2016, are you ready for this? It's a big one. Justin Timberlake receives the Decade Award at the Teen Choice Awards. Isn't that exciting? Well, here's something maybe a little bit more exciting. July 31st, 593 BCE, or BC, Ezekiel prophesied to the exiles in Babylon. 593 BC, July 31st, 593 BC, Ezekiel begins his ministry. That's a pretty big day. And there's a lot of different kinds of things going on in Ezekiel's day. Um, there are a couple of things that he had to, he had to deal with. One of those things was that he, he had to deal, dispel the false hope that Israel's captivity, and we're going to talk about that throughout this time, uh, that Israel's captivity would be short. You know how it goes, right? Like we usually, uh, something's taking place, we don't like it, and we want 
to believe that God only has this for a short time period for us. And so the Israelites were experiencing the same thing, and Ezekiel had to dispel the notion that it was for only a short time. He had to explain the reasons for the severe judgments on the nation. They just needed to know why. Like, why was all this stuff happening? Why was it taking place? And he had to bring a message of future hope. This was his role. And although people didn't necessarily respond positively, they heard the messages and they knew the truth. And God's people were not left without explanation. They were not left without direction. And the truth is, neither are we. Regardless of whatever it is that we're going through, we're not left without direction. We're not left without explanation, typically. So the book of Ezekiel is one of those books of the Bible that takes up a lot of space in the Old Testament. There's a lot of chapters to it. There's a lot of stuff going on in it. Uh, and it's a weird book. I mean, it's, it's full of visions and dreams and pronouncements. And uh, I mean, it gets even weirder where there's parts that talk about like feces and blood and, and just Ezekiel experiencing all kinds of strange things. Kind of get the picture there, right? There's a lot of weird stuff happening. It's just more comfortable if we don't read it, right? I mean, a person opens up the book of Ezekiel and you're, you're reading it and it's like, man, this just doesn't make a ton of sense. It's worth reading. It's important that we read. So let, let's carry on forward. I'm just going to give you today is going to be an overview of the book of Ezekiel, talking about its content, uh, its context, what are some of the major themes that we find within it, and also what truth we need to walk away from. And so when are we in the story? So it's really important for us to understand this piece because the book of Ezekiel and the stuff that Judah is experiencing at this time make absolutely no sense unless we look all the way back to King Solomon. Now, King Solomon, for those of you who don't know, is the son of King David, King David, man after God's own heart. And, and Solomon was known as being this incredibly wise person. But he followed after the gods of his wives. And he set up these uh, altars and, and, and places of worship in high places all around the kingdom. And what we find is that there is this pronouncement over Solomon and his heritage and that his kingdom is going to get divided. It's not going to be what it was because of his sin. And so after the death of Solomon, what we find is that the Israelite nation becomes divided. You've got uh, 10 of the 12 tribes are up in the north, and then you've got two tribes that are down in the south, and they set up their own separate kings in this time. And so there's this guy by the name of Jeroboam. No, Jeroboam was a, a servant of Solomon, and Solomon got wind that, that Jeroboam was going to be coming up into power, and so he chases him around. He wants him dead. Uh, Jeroboam flees to Egypt, and then after uh, Solomon's death, Jeroboam comes back. And in his coming back, or even just in the, the prophecy that was given to him, that he was going to take over the ten tribes, in 1 Kings 11, verse 37 to 39, here's what it says. However, as for you, and this is after just talking about taking away uh, the ten tribes from Solomon. He says, however, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. 
Now, the ten nations of the north, they were called Israel, and the two nations of the south were called Judah. And as a matter of fact, the two nations of the south were absorbed as, as one. And so you had the Benjamites and you had Judah, and, and the Benjamites kind of, kind of got annexed into Judah. And so it was just referred to Judah from that point forward. So you had Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And, and so you will be king over Israel, which is the ten tribes of the north. Now listen to this. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. And so what we find is that the kingdom is divided with Jeroboam ruling two, 10 tribes in the north and, and to the south you have Rehoboam who is ruling two tribes in the south. And Jeroboam fortifies his, um, his nation at a place called Shechem. In 1 Kings 12, 26 to 27, Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up and offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord, to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. And what we find here is that having received this promise from God that if he follows after the decrees of God, if he does what God wants, if he comes and becomes this king much like David, that God's with him. And what we find here is that Jeroboam didn't keep the faith. Like he didn't trust the promise of God in the midst of this. And so Jeroboam, we find he doesn't keep the faith. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28 to 30, it says this, After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. Much like what happened at Sinai, right? And then he says to the people, listen, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So these golden calves, these idols that he has made, he's claiming that these are what brought them up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and one he set up in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Now, it also tells us that there is this feast that took place at the time. And uh, the feast is called the Feast of Booths. Some translations call it Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, other, in, the, in the Hebrew, it's Sukkot is what it is. And it begins with this emphasis on the wandering Israelites living in booths and the symbolism of God dwelling with them and they with Him. Leviticus 23, 42-43 says this, Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so from this point forward, what we find here in the story is that Jeroboam didn't just simply move these idols or place these idols up, he also said that we need to make ourselves a festival much like the one that they have. And the festival that they had was this festival of tabernacles, which was this pilgrimage festival that every native-born 
firstborn male needed to pilgrimage towards Jerusalem to experience this symbol of what it meant for them to be in complete dependency on God and that God is the one that rescued them out of Egypt. And so there is this lacking of acknowledging God by setting up these different calves, right? He sets up this false religious system. He sets up priests to lead people, and these priests were not from the line of Levi. And so it's another thing that he he did that that took away from the honoring and the honorable way of worshiping the Lord. So there's a variety of things that Jeroboam did in this. And so they are to live in these temporary shelters. And what we find is that Jeroboam just did evil in the sight of the Lord is is the expression that gets used. And from this point forward, after Jeroboam, we see in total 19 kings in succession doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And these 10 northern tribes turned away from their God. And after several centuries, God sent the nation called Assyria to fight against them. And in the year 722 BC, these 10 tribes went into exile into Assyria. And these 10 tribes are now often referred to as the lost tribes of Israel. Now at that time, God didn't remove the two southern tribes, right? And so this is is what's going on in the north. And And all these 19, 19 kings were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And so, you know, we had a guest speaker coming in doing an overview in the Old Testament. Like 19 kings, like this is the grace of God not stepping in sooner and doing something sooner. 19 kings. And so these 10 tribes went into Israel. They're often referred to as the lost tribes of Israel. Oh, sorry, they went into exile in Assyria. And at that time, God didn't remove the two southern tribes. And these two tribes formed a nation called Judah. Now, over the next 100 years, what we see is that the people came and, um, and they became just as bad as the 10 tribes of the north. Now, the difference being is that there were some good kings that were in the southern kingdom. Judah had an evil king by the name of Manasseh, Manasseh, who championed the worship of gods other than Yahweh, other than the Lord God, other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And he was going so far as to building altars to these other gods, listen to this, in Jerusalem's temple like God's house. In 2 Kings 21 verse 9, it says, Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. And so you're, they're in the land of Canaan. Like, you need to hear this. In the land of Canaan, these people were considered just evil in the sight of the Lord in terms of the things they did. And he's saying here that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Manasseh took Judah in a direction that would inevitably bring about the curse from breaking the covenant. A few years after Manasseh died, his grandson Josiah became king. And this guy, he is famous for becoming king at like eight years old, uh, for finding the book of the law, which contained all the terms of the covenant. And so for anybody who would have forgotten what the covenant relationship was supposed to look like, this book of the law contained that information. And so he was able to set Judah back into right standing. So learning about the book of the law spurred Josiah on to undo the evil that Manasseh established. And it would look like Judah was back on track, except that he didn't bring down the high places, right? So those were still standing. But he reforms that he did, the reforms he enacted, 
It just didn't stick. After Josiah died, Judah fell right back into idolatry and wickedness. And though there were moments of obedience, Judah wasn't really all that different from Israel, the northern kingdom. The agreement that God made with Israel warned the people, and it said that the people must obey God. If they didn't obey God, then God was going to send them into exile among the other nations. And that happened to the ten tribes. Like we know, like the ten tribes, they were done. You don't actually hear about the ten tribes coming back after this. Now, the Samaritans, they would say that they are descendants of the ten tribes. Specifically, uh, they talk about uh, Joseph, actually. They, they, they see a connection to Joseph from back then. I'm not sure... There's a lot of fun study we could do with that, and that's a rabbit trail that I find myself wanting to go down. We're not going to go there. But what we do find is that these 10 tribes are not really spoken of again. Not in terms of seeing the activity of these 10 tribes. But that disbursement, that going into exile, was something that was about to happen in Judah. And in the year 598 BC, we learn of a king of Babylon by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And he attacked Judah after three months. The new king of Judah, Jerichoam, uh, sorry, Jehoiakim, handed Jerusalem over to Nebuchadnezzar. Just, here you go. We can't fight you. Here you go. In the year 597, so one year later, Nebuchadnezzar took uh, Jehoiakim, his family, and his leaders of the people, leaders of the people into Babylon. And this is where you begin to see the story of Daniel overlapping the story of Ezekiel and Jeremiah overlapping the story of Ezekiel. And among these people that were brought was this guy by the name of Ezekiel. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, and, and Ezekiel came from a priestly line, so he was uh, in line being trained to become a priest at the time when he was taken into exile into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar made Zedekiah who was the uncle of Jehoiakim, king of Jerusalem. Now, that may have seemed like a good idea to Nebuchadnezzar, but Zedekiah wasn't a guy who was really good at following people. And so Zedekiah wasn't loyal to the king of Babylon. And so the Babylonians destroyed the cities of Judah. And then in the year 586 BC, they destroyed Jerusalem. Done. Leveled it. The Babylonians killed most of the people in Jerusalem, but took some to Babylon. Like, this is our context. So we go from Solomon, and we have this kingdom that gets divided after Solomon. You've got the king of the North Jeroboam, who is, starts this reign of just moving people away from God, and every succeeding king after him, like all 19 of the kings there, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So much so, like you've probably heard, and we're going to talk about this guy a little bit later sometime, but you heard about Ahab and Jezebel. Well, Ahab was promised by God that if he did, it's like the same thing he gave to Jeroboam, if he did well in the sight of the Lord, if he followed after the decrees of the Lord, if he honored the Lord, then it would go well for him. And he said no. And he went in a different direction. He went in the opposite direction. And then ultimately, of course, what we find is that with these 19 kings moving people away from God, God just said, okay, that's it. I got to end it. Sends Assyria in. Syria takes over. Judah starts going in the same direction. They had a couple of good kings in there, Josiah being one of them. Uh, but ultimately, they start moving down in the same direction. God says, okay, fine. Well, here, come on in, Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to start doing some stuff to clean this thing up. That's what's going on. 
This is not a story of God just simply bringing about judgment. This is a story of God saying, listen, people, we need to turn your eyes back. Like you got to come back to your first love. You got to come back to the way things are supposed to be. You got to come back to being my people amongst a pagan world and show them what it means to be the people of God. It's a callback. Ezekiel is the writer of the book. And uh, it, the book actually takes its title from, from this priest of the same name. He's the son of a guy by the name of Boozy, which just sounds like he's an alcoholic, but he's not, I'm sure. Ezekiel's priestly lineage shines through his prophetic ministry. He, he's often concerned with topics like uh, the temple. He's concerned with topics like the priesthood. He's concerned with topics like the glory of God and the sacrificial system. And so all of these things are priestly focuses. And, and so he is set up as priest to go and speak to his people who are in exile. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us that the prophecy began in the 13th year. Now, some scholars usually consider that to actually be the age of the person who is receiving this. They believe that it's Ezekiel's age, making him out to be about the same age as Daniel at the time that was brought down into this uh, Babylonian exile. And Daniel was brought there about 10 years earlier, right? So there's about a 10-year gap in terms of uh, between these two guys who are contemporaries of each other. And so like many other priests of Israel, Ezekiel, he was married um, and his wife passed away, as we read about in the book of Ezekiel. But when his wife died during this prophetic ministry, God prevented Ezekiel from mourning her in public as a sign of Judah's lack of concern for the things of God. That's found actually in Ezekiel 24, verse 16 to 24. And so it's interesting because God asks some stuff that becomes incredibly symbolic. And so Ezekiel is faithful and he walks forward into this. Now we're going to talk more about Ezekiel next week when we talk about his, his calling and his commissioning. But it's important that we understand that this book is actually named after him because he is, in fact, the principal character apart from God in the story. Where are we? Well, geographically, where are we? Ezekiel lived among the Jewish exiles in Babylon at a settlement uh, along the river uh, Chebar called Tel Aviv. Uh, it's Ezekiel 3.15. And Tel Aviv, uh, another way to say it is Tel Aviv. And so... The B sound in Hebrew often has like a V sound, so Tel Aviv. Um, and so this is where he is. It's less than 100 miles south of Babylon. The invading Babylonians brought 10,000 Jews to the village in 597 BC. Like, think about that. You have this village. There are people who are living there. And then all of a sudden, you've got this influx of 10,000 people. Just think about how disruptive that would be. they got to find homes. they got to find land. they, they got to, like, all these different animals that are coming. Everything to set up life is here. And including Ezekiel and the last king of Judah, Jehoiakim. 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 8 to 14. And so Ezekiel's prophecy began like just five years after coming into Tel Aviv. And he continued to prophesy among the people for at least 22 years. Because people spoke, uh, because he spoke to a people whom God had exiled due to their continued rebellion against them, majority of Ezekiel's messaging, it communicates the judgment for sins, it, uh, for sins committed. 
But like all the prophets, he also provided his people now that without a land of their own, he provided them with some future hope that we read about in chapters 33 to 48. And so then we might be saying, okay, it's a lot of information, Rob, right? Like we got a little bit about who Ezekiel is. We know the time frame. We know that, you know, it, Ezekiel begins to make more sense when we look at it in the context of God enacting his judgment upon his people after years and years of attempting to draw them back to him and having a king that just takes him in the opposite direction. And so you may ask yourself, okay, so why is this book so important? Well, the book of Ezekiel pronounces judgment both on Israel and the surrounding nations, but it also provides a vision for the future millennial kingdom that we read about in the book of Revelation. And it complements and adds to the vision of other Old and New Testament texts, because there are other texts that speak like this. So if you want to understand Ezekiel, you got to read Daniel, you got to read Jeremiah, you got to read Lamentations. And so like these are all contemporaries of each other. There's Obadiah. And, and so they're all living in and around the same time in this exile. And they're all offering you another perspective on what's taking place as God is speaking to his people. But not only does his books present a this incredible picture of the resurrection and restoration of God's people in Ezekiel 37, it also offers readers a picture of the reconstructed temple in Jerusalem, complete with the return of God's glory to his dwelling place. And that's in chapter 40, verses one, or verse 1, all the way to chapter 48, verse 35. And so the latter section of Ezekiel's prophecy looks forward to people's worship after Christ's return in the end times when he will rule Israel and the nations from his throne in Jerusalem during a 1,000-year reign. So I just want you to consider this. Ezekiel starts his prophetic ministry in 593, July 31st, 593. And back in 593 BC, he's telling us about what's to come yet in our future in terms of that millennial reign of Christ. This is ridiculous. This is like this is awesome. Like what we find is that even looking back into the Old Testament, in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel is talking about sure, like the the immediate prophecies, the immediate dealing with the um, both both the um, discipline of Israel, judgments on Israel, and the restoration of Israel. But it's also talking about the future return of Jesus for his 1,000-year reign. And so even in the Old Testament, we are still in the middle of the story. Like we're in the narrative of the New Testament. So what's the big idea here? Okay, well, the Old Testament, uh, the prophets presuppose and teach God's sovereignty over all creation, over people and nations and the course of history. God's initiative and control is expressed clearly in the book of Ezekiel. And so God's control, definitely expressed from the first chapter, which is graphically describing the overwhelming presence of God to in Ezekiel's world, to the last phrase of Ezekiel's vision, which says, the Lord is there. This book sounds and echoes of God's sovereignty. You want to know who's in charge? God's in charge. You want to know the timing of things? It's God's timing. It's not our comfort levels. It's not our desires. It's not our preferences. None of that stuff. This is all about Him. He is sovereign. He is God. He is King. And these are some of the things that we see in the book of Ezekiel. And God determined that He would be known and acknowledged 
Like there are 65 occurrences of the words, they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And it testifies to God's desire and intention. So overall, what we have is chapters 1 through 24. They teach that God will be revealed in the fall of Jerusalem and in the destruction of the temple. In chapters 25 to 32, it teaches that uh, the nations likewise will know God through His judgments. And then verses or chapters 33 to 48 promise that God will be known through the restoration and spiritual renewal of Israel. This is great. But God's total sovereignty is also evident in His mobility. Like he's not limited to the temple in Jerusalem. Let's understand this. Like Ezekiel is his prophet. God is speaking to his prophet Ezekiel in exile. And so God is not stuck in Jerusalem in the temple. This is a big deal. Like this is God got God on the move. He's not stuck in the temple anymore. He is with his people. He can respond to his people's sin by leaving his sanctuary in Israel. And he can graciously visit his exiled children in Babylon. God is free to judge. He is equally free to be gracious. And what we find through the story, if we look at the history between Solomon and, um, and all the way down to Joachim, if we look at all the way coming up even to Ezekiel's time of the judgments, all of these things, and, and Ezekiel prophesying this future glory for Israel and, and for the world, what we find is that God is equally free to be gracious. He's stern in his judgments. But he's ultimately gracious as well. He allows the total destruction of Israel's political and religious life. You catch that? The total destruction of Israel's political and religious life so that her renewed life and his presence with her would be clearly seen as a gift from the creator of all things. It's a reorienting. It's a call back because you have to remember that like God was the ruler of Israel through his prophet. Israel wanted a king so that they could be like the rest of the nations. And this is God saying, I don't want you to be like the rest of the nations. I want you to be like me and for me and me for you and to show the rest of the nations what it's like to live with me. And so this is God kind of disrupting all of that stuff, saying the religious systems, the political systems, all the things that you found comfort in, they're gone. And now all you got is me. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? So God didn't exile the Israelites primarily to punish them. God never has, nor God has never been, nor is he now interested in punishment for punishment's sake. He wasn't, this wasn't just like, okay, you did bad, now you're punished. Like, that's a flawed way to think about God. God's way of doing things is that whenever there is a punishment taking place, there is a discipline and there's a grace involved in that the intention is to get us to turn around and come back to Him. That is what took place with the nation of Israel over the generations. And so He intended the punishment or judgment in Ezekiel's day to be a means to an end. And that means to an end is that God will bring His people to repentance and humility to His glory. You catch that? God will bring His people to repentance and humility to His glory. You know what? We don't typically like that. It's uncomfortable. 
It's disruptive to us. We, we start asking questions like, oh God, where are you in the midst of my anguish? And, my, and, and we, we sound like David in the Psalms, right? But the difference being that David typically turned his eyes back to God and says, yet I will praise your name. And for many, we don't. He's wallow. God will bring his people to repentance and humility, to his glory. They live so long in sin and rebellion, confident in their own strength and that of the neighboring nations that they needed God to remind them of his holy nature and that their humble identity, right? So his holy nature and their humble identity in an incredibly dramatic way. It's almost as if there is this, okay, enough. We got to get this straight. After centuries of warnings, prophetic messages, and invasions, God decided that a more significant action was required, and he had to remove the people from their promised land. And again, all throughout the text, like of the 77 times this particular phrase is used in the Old Testament, okay? 77 times used in the Old Testament. 65 times it's used here in the book of Ezekiel that they will know, or then they will know, that I am the Lord. What do you think the point is there? If out of the 77 times this phrase gets used in the Old Testament, and 65 of those times is right here in the book of Ezekiel, do you think the point is that then we will know that He is the Lord? It's almost as if He's suggesting that, or it is, that He's suggesting that, look, you, you've forgotten this. You have forgotten who you are. You have forgotten who I am. And I'm going to remind you. And in reminding you, this is going to be painful. This is going to hurt. You're going to experience loss. You're going to experience discomfort. The world around you is going to look like absolute chaos. It's going to feel like everything is crumbling. You're going to lose your temple. You're going to lose your kings. You're going to lose all of this different stuff. But then you will know that I am the Lord, he says. So how do I apply this? How do I take a look at an overview of a book of the Bible and say, okay, how is this relevant to my life? Well, Ezekiel's entire prophetic ministry is centered around this small, exiled community in Tel Aviv. A people uprooted from their homes, their livelihoods, and living out of days in a foreign land. Like, can you imagine the feelings of disorientation and confusion that accompany these people? Like, just imagine being completely disrupted and taken to a place that it's got all these other weird gods that maybe, yeah, okay, you're probably accustomed to many of them, but things are just different. It's not your homeland. And even though many of the exiles were directly engaged in the sinful behavior that led to God's judgment, that would not prevent them from wondering why this was all happening to them. I find this to be the most dramatic thing, actually. Um, it's weird, like when I sin, there are times like I'll sin and I'll ask, I'll ask God, like, God, why is all this happening to me? I have people come to me who um, have, have sin going on in their lives, decisions they're making that are not God-honoring decisions. And yet in the midst of those decisions, they're asking God to bless them in their decisions. But these decisions are not honorable to Him. So we're asking God to bless our sin. And that's what Israel was doing here. They were asking God to bless their sin. Like, I'm just wondering, what is going on? Why is this happening to them? And I think we sometimes find ourselves in that predicament. Like, we say, like, why, Lord? 
and waiting in the silence for an answer. Well, these exiles had to wait five years for God to send Ezekiel. So for five years, nothing. Just living in hardship. And then when God did send his prophet, his prophet had a message that they likely didn't want to hear. So God is the Lord of heaven and earth. The judgment on the people, the judgment the people were experiencing was as a result of their own sin. And it was corporate sin. It was the sin of the nation of Israel. The book of Ezekiel reminds us to seek the Lord out in those dark times when we feel lost, to examine our own lives and to align our lives with Him. So even right now, maybe you feel like your life is disrupted in some way. Maybe you feel as though there's chaos. Maybe you feel like you're just wondering, Lord, what is going on? Why is this happening? Maybe, maybe you've got some sin in your life, the way that you're living, and your eyes are not turned towards the Lord, you're turned towards yourself and, and, and your preferences and your comforts or whatever it is. And you're asking, like, why is this so hard, Lord? Maybe, likely, is that He's saying, listen, you're going to know that I'm God. And in the midst of your struggle, reach out. In the midst of the consequences of the sin of you personally, the community at large, right? Because it was the nation of Israel that was being taught to task or taken to task. You had in the New Testament, you've got the church of Laodicea that's that's attacked by Jesus. You've got uh, the church of Ephesus that Jesus is is judging and, and, and saying, listen, like you, you've good with your doctrine, but you've lost your first love. It's the church of Laodicea that was just self-reliant and not reliant on him at all. And and so they were either, they were neither hot, they weren't cold. Both of these have good purposes. They were lukewarm. And he's like, man, that's just gross. I'm going to vomit you up. That's to a church. And so there's this idea that collectively together, we can lose our way. And, and what God does in those times where we lose our way is like, he's like, okay, hang on, turn back. Come back. Come back. And know that I am Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here. And I ask, Lord, that as we're studying your prophet Ezekiel, the words that you have given him to share with the nation of Israel, Lord, and the lessons that we need to learn through this so that we know properly how to continue to be your people. I ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are willing to be changed, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.